0: Well, I don't have to tell you that we live in a broken world. Uh, each one of us falls short of our own ideals that we set for ourselves. We're, we're sinful people. We're broken people. And, and we're swept up into this, this polarizing time in our society where we feel the issues of injustice from various vantage points that we each have. We live in a broken world. Conservatives feel that their values are being trampled over by a a liberal agenda. Marginalized people of every kind feel like they're experiencing systemic injustice. Asian Americans are experiencing increased uh, unjustified violence. Maybe you've simply been accused of something that you didn't do. It's not my intention uh, this morning to parse out all of those issues. We've touched on them in various ways and various forums over the last year. Our Faith and Culture series that is going on now on Wednesdays is is taking up some of these issues. This morning, I simply want to start by acknowledging that all of us feel injustice at some points, in some ways. And that's not surprising because we're fallen people and we live in a fallen world. So what do you do about it? How do you think about it? How do you cope with it? In our passage today, we'll read about the greatest miscarriage of justice the world has ever known. The just and the righteous Son of God will be unjustly condemned by sinful men. And this has implications for us personally. As we deal with the sin in our own lives, the injustice that we contribute to the world, what happened to Jesus is directly relevant to that. And Jesus' experience described in this text has implications for how we navigate living in a broken, sinful, fallen world. We're in our series in the Gospel of Mark, which we've entitled, Who is this Son of Man?, because that's the question that Mark is posing throughout his gospel. Every one of his accounts weaves together a story or a situation in the life of Jesus, this brief snapshot of Jesus' life, and these accounts are intended to force us to ask the question, who is this man who does and says these kinds of things? But up until now, that answer was implicit. It was a secret. People were trying to work it out. As they asked that question for themselves, as they saw and interacted with Jesus, those who got it, those who recognized that Jesus is the Messiah, were told to be quiet, to not tell other people about that, because Jesus understood that they would completely misunderstand what that meant. Jesus had been repeatedly trying to explain to his own disciples that the Messiah they were expecting is not the Messiah he was. He had been explaining that his intention was to go to Jerusalem, where he, it says in chapter 10, verse 33, he would be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him. And flog him and kill him, and three days later, he would rise. Last week, um, Peter, um, uh, our newest elder, Peter Huang, uh, looked at Jesus' arrest. And today, we come to his trial, where Jesus is actually delivered over and condemned to death. Who is this Son of Man? That's the question that's posed to us in Jesus' trial explicitly. And he answers it directly. He goes on record, it's a secret no more. But as soon as Jesus answers this question, we'll see his answer in the text, the question for us shifts. Okay, that question's answered. What will you do with the Son of Man? How will you respond to him? And the way that we respond to Jesus is the most important issue in our lives. That's a big claim, but I invite you to consider it this morning in light of our text. So will you stand as I read from Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. If you have your Bibles, please follow along, or you can follow along on the screen, Mark 14, 53 through 65, this is God's Word. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all of the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. But even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the, chief, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, I have three points today from this text. The first, a miscarriage of justice. Second, the real judge reveals himself. And third, the judge is judged. So let's take up the first point, a miscarriage of justice. After his arrest, Jesus was brought by these guards into the high priest's mansion. It's probably a palatial mansion. Uh, The high priest at that time was a man named Caiaphas. And there they had gathered the Sanhedrin for a trial. They basically assembled a court. Now, the Sanhedrin was the highest tribunal of Jews under Roman occupation during that time. Rome was in power, but they allowed the Jewish leaders a certain latitude of governing their affairs. And the Sanhedrin was made up of men from priestly families. Many of them were from this group called the Sadducees, if you're familiar with that word. I've included teachers of the law, sometimes they're called scribes in various translations, and the elders. Many of the elders were also Pharisees. And the Sanhedrin, as I said, had a fairly broad jurisdiction under Roman occupation. They were given authority to judge Jewish religious practices, and they also could order arrests and handle, uh, judge cases basically, that did not involve capital punishment. But capital cases, like the one that Jesus is, is being accused of, needed the confirmation from the Romans. The Jews didn't have the authority to put anyone to death. And so as they gathered that night, they were looking for evidence that would justify handing Jesus over to the Roman authorities to carry out the death penalty. This had been their intent for a long time. And now they had him. They just had to make something stick they had no intention of giving Jesus a fair trial. The laws at that time were surprisingly careful in order to avoid the unjust condemnation or execution of an innocent person. There are all kinds of parameters that were, that were in place. It was customary to produce a defense attorney for the accused, but Jesus was not given one. It was Required that capital cases take place over at least two days, but this was a very quick trial. No trial for life was allowed at night, but Jesus was tried and condemned sometime between 1 and 3 a.m. The guilty vote and the sentencing could not be pronounced on the same day or the case uh, in in order to give the judges the opportunity to sleep on it, just to to make sure that they didn't overlook something. But both the, the guilty vote and the sentencing occurred at the same time for Jesus. There had to be at least two witnesses whose testimony had to agree on the details or the case was thrown out. But Mark tells us that their testimony did not agree, and rather than dismissing the case as they were required to do by law, they kept looking for more evidence. Furthermore, these witnesses, by bearing false witness, were violating the Ninth Commandment, and and that was a serious offense, that it should have have, uh, required the same penalty for the false witness that they were accusing the person, and yet... Uh, we get the the impression that uh, their, their testimony was encouraged by the court. Perhaps most obviously, verse 55 tells us that they were looking for evidence so that they could put Jesus to death. But a court is not supposed to decide the verdict before it hears the evidence. And that's the point. This is not a real trial. It was an unjust plot to kill Jesus because they were offended by him and they were jealous of his influence. So let me pause here and and just ask you a question. How do you handle the injustices in your own life? Have you been falsely accused of something that you didn't do or has someone taken advantage of you? Are you being discriminated against in some way because of your values or your ethnicity or for some other reason? What do you do about that when things aren't fair? When when something happens to you that shouldn't happen? Well, it's appropriate, of course, to stand up for yourself, to advocate for what's right. It's good and necessary to take action in appropriate ways to change what's broken in this world. But it's also tempting during those times to respond in ways that don't honor God. Returning evil for evil, feeling bitterness. Even hatred towards those that have wronged you. An unforgiving spirit. You know, we could go on. It's a huge issue. But at this point, I just want to say this. Jesus knows. He's been there. He knows. He offers to be with you and to give you what you need. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 tell us that we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, therefore let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. He goes on, it says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Unlike Caiaphas or any other human high priest, Jesus is a high priest who's perfect, who's sinless, and he can empathize with us because he's gone through whatever we're going through in some way. He's been tempted as we are even to a greater degree because he never gave in. Um, He was completely innocent, and yet he did not sin. And because he knows what it's like to experience injustice, he can help us with the injustice or the struggles or the issues in our life that we need his grace for. And because he's ascended into heaven where he has all authority in heaven and on earth, he's able to help us. As we'll see in a minute, he's coming back to fix everything that's broken in us and in our world. But the point here is that now, even as we await that day to come, now Jesus knows. He cares. He can empathize. He gives us grace and help that we need in order to enable us to honor God with whatever is going on in our lives in how we respond. We just have to come to him. Well, the Sanhedrin isn't getting what it was looking for. It's not getting what it wanted. And the high priest must have been getting frustrated. And so when nothing seemed to be sticking, the high priest stands up in the middle of the assembly. And and he tries to cajole Jesus to testify against himself. But verse 61 tells us that Jesus remained silent. He gave no answer. There was... Just simply no need to deny these outlandish charges. They couldn't stick. Jesus' patient silence in the face of these lies uh, just demonstrates his calm, his trust in the Lord. It demonstrates the fulfillment of prophecy about the Messiah. For example, Isaiah 53, 7, just a few verses after what we read earlier in our liturgy, says this about the suffering servant that would come says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, was watching in the courtyard. He had been admitted into the high priest's household. We'll, we'll talk about that next week. Uh, and, And so he's seen what's going on, and Peter would later reflect as he thinks about Jesus, probably that night, but throughout his ministry, he'll say, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus knows that one day all things will be made right, and that allowed him to persevere. Finally, the high priest asked him straight up, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And and this is the central question of the entire gospel of Mark. Who is this man? Now, finally, the time has come to openly and directly answer the question. And that brings us to our second point. The real judge reveals himself. Now, We need to understand what the high priest is asking here. When he asks if Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the blessed one, he's simply asking if Jesus thinks that he's the Messiah. King David and other kings who followed him were were called sons of God. They didn't understand that to mean that they were divine, like some of the pagan religions around them. They, they didn't think they, they, they were the son of God in that sense, but merely this was an expression uh, to indicate that they were close to God. They were favored by God. He had made a covenant with them. And so this high priest is not asking Jesus, are you God? He's asking, are you the Messiah that we're expecting? And to this question, Jesus says, verse 62, I am. Straight up, yes. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. And and what he says next is what actually blows their categories. He goes on to identify himself with this son of man figure that is depicted in Daniel chapter 7. He says, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, everybody in the room understood what he was saying. They were all familiar with this this famous prophecy. The Son of Man in Daniel 7 was this this mysterious figure that it's it's really hard to know what to do with in the Old Testament um, because uh, Jesus hasn't been revealed yet. But this this figure uh, has both divine and human traits. Uh, He comes from the throne of God to earth, on the clouds of heaven to judge the earth, to judge the world. The clouds of heaven are not normal, everyday clouds. Uh, The the clouds of heaven refer to the glory cloud that represented the presence of God with his people in the tabernacle and in the temple and in some of the prophets' visions that they would have of God in his heavenly throne room. The Son of Man in Daniel 7 is given dominion And glory and an everlasting kingdom that's comprised of people from every nation and language. Jesus is saying that he'll come to earth in the very glory of God at the end of time to judge the world, to destroy all evil and rule forever. Do you see what Jesus is doing? In his answer to the question, are you the Messiah, he's going way beyond what they asked him to confess. And he picks, of all the things that he could pick, he picks a passage that indicates that he is the judge, not them. And so understand what he's saying. He's saying, you think, you think you're sitting here judging me, but I'm the judge. I'm the divine judge. I'm the judge you think I'm on trial here, but ultimately you will be on trial. Be careful, right? No matter what you do to me today, realize I'm coming back, and I'm going to right every wrong, and I'm going to deal with every injustice. Amazing response. That perspective Is what allows us to entrust ourselves to God, to experience the mercy and grace that Jesus offers in every time of need. That perspective is why the Apostle Paul can say in the face of injustice in Romans 12, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. But leave room for God's wrath. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so the question before us now is, what will you do with this son of man? How will you respond to him? Look at the way that those in the room responded when they heard him say this. The, The room exploded in outrage. And Jesus was immediately convicted of blasphemy, and so we come to our third point. The judge is judged. The high priest tears his clothes, which was a symbol of grief, but in reality, this is exactly what he was gunning for. This is exactly what he wanted. This is just show. It's hypocrisy, right? Instead of honest grief, he must have been delighted that Jesus said what Jesus said. Blasphemy was mocking God. And uh, anyone who claimed to be God was automatically thought to have committed blasphemy, which was punishable by death. And so they officially find him guilty, they condemn him, and then the courtroom degenerates into mob violence. They spit on him. They blindfold him. They beat him. They mock him. But friends, this very action was exactly what Jesus had been saying he must come to Jerusalem to experience. Something profound is going on. The judge of the world is condescending himself to be judged by sinful men. We should be standing before him, not him standing before us. The one deserving judgment, the ones deserving judgment are doing the judging And the true judge is being judged instead, and by doing so, they're the ones that are committing blasphemy, mocking and trampling on God himself. John Stott, uh, in his wonderful book, The Cross of Christ, explained the essence of what was going on here. He writes this, he says, For the essence of sin is substituting ourselves for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We assert ourselves against God and put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for us and puts himself where only we deserve to be. We claim prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to us alone. Do you see what he's saying? This injustice that Jesus is experiencing is his plan all along. It's it's why he came. It's why he said over and over and over to his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem. These things must happen. It's the heart of the gospel where Jesus takes the place of sinful people and receives what we deserve so that we receive what he deserves. The one who deserved to go free is condemned, so that we who deserve to be condemned go free. What will you do with this Son of Man? Will you recognize Him as the Messiah, the true Son of God who has substituted Himself for you? That means that no matter what you've done, no matter what you deserve, Jesus came to stand in your place to be condemned so that you can be accepted by God. Do you believe that? Will you worship him and follow him? Or will you reject him? One thing you really can't do is be casual about him. Not with any integrity. No one who met Jesus responded apathetically. We may be horrified at how the Sanhedrin reacted to him, but they're acting with more integrity than someone who's just casual about Jesus. If you understand what Jesus is saying about himself, you can't say with integrity, uh, oh, I believe in Jesus, and then just kind of dabble in the faith. Just kind of drop into worship uh, once a week or, or, or a few times a month, just kind of, Uh, relegate him to a certain day of the week in your life. Jesus claimed to be God, the divine judge, the king over all of heaven and earth who substituted himself for you. Now, if a human claims to be God, you either hate him like like the Sanhedrin did or you consider him to be a nut job or or you let him be the center of your life. Everything in your life begins to revolve around him. Who is this Son of Man? What will you do with this Son of Man? How will you respond to Him? Those are the most important questions in life. And how you respond to them, such a trajectory for how you think about the sin, the injustice in your own soul, right, your sin, as well as how you relate to a sinful, broken, fallen, unjust world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though we substitute ourselves for you, anytime we sin, Lord, we claim prerogatives and authority that we don't have. Lord, you substituted for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you took our place, that you so loved the world, God, that you sent your only beloved Son, your only begotten Son. Thank you, Jesus, that though you had every right to claim your prerogatives of God, you emptied yourself and humbled yourself and took the form of a servant, and you were obedient even to the point of death on a cross. But, Lord, we praise you as well that that's not the end of the story. You are Messiah. You are the Son of Man. You are coming in glory. One day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are God. And until that day comes, Lord, you have been raised, you have ascended into heaven, and you sit at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, with all power and authority, and you're at work. Lord, you're at work in our lives. You're inviting us into a relationship with you. You're you're encouraging us to, uh, to recalibrate our lives around you and what you're about, to live in the way that you designed us to live. And one day you're coming again to fix everything wrong with this world. All the crooked will be made straight. We praise you, Jesus, that you are the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One, the Son of Man who comes on the clouds of glory who will reign forever and ever, amen.